Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. All right. Well, welcome to this week's episode. We're here at Discovery Land, downtown Denver with James Hubert, president at Discovery Land. James, how you doing tonight, buddy? Doing well. Doing nice. Well. I appreciate you opening the doors. You know, it's about 730 here in Denver. And normally I try and knock these out early in the day, but a shout out to Catherine who actually set this up for us. Definitely. It was funny because she reached out to me and I'm out of Houston and I had some business to attend up here. And I said, well, you know, it's probably good to, you know, fill my free time to get on the podcast with folks. And so she helped me out with that. And before I knew it, she had reached out to like, you know 12 different people and lined me up with a spreadsheet of an itinerary and she had like you know my career business meetings set in there and then she also had other ones so a big shout out to Catherine helping us connect and certainly happy that you know I know you were at an event earlier so to come back here and you know spend some more time in the office man I really appreciate it before we get going I just want to mention OGGN's travel sponsor BCD Travel BCD provides solutions for every business travel program visit BCD Travel for more details and if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. Also, if you feel like you have a great story or idea for a show, or if you simply have any questions for me or one of the guests, hit me up on LinkedIn and uh, I'll be sure to reply. And just, I love the conversation that people will bring up, you know, whether on LinkedIn or email. I just encourage you to reach out and engage because I want to make sure that this is valuable for the audience. So if there's anything you have that you recommend or, you know, any feedback is good. So please hit me up. So James, man, tell me a little bit about your story. You know, we started talking a little bit and you mentioned where you're from, but for the listeners out there, you know, tell your journey and how you became president here at Discoveryland. Well, I'm originally from Evansville, Indiana, which is very Southwest corner of Indiana. You know, there's a lot of small oil fields around that area, you know, a lot of kind of smaller time oil and gas operations. You know, I had some friends whose family was involved in oil and gas. Mm-hmm. It's a big coal area, or at least was once upon a time, you know, so it's certainly a hydrocarbon rich area to some extent. Interesting. I would have never guessed that, honestly. No reason to, but I think if you could see a topographical map, it's a pretty low area and a couple of rivers come together there. And so it's kind of a natural place for hydrocarbons, I think, to accumulate over hundreds of millions of years. Yeah. You know, but, you know, I kind of was always aware of the energy industry, wasn't directly involved in it, didn't have family directly involved in it, but certainly good friends, you know, in, you know, a wide variety of disciplines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so again, just kind of a product of chance, you know, right as I was getting into my later years of undergrad and subsequent years after that, the New Albany shale play in the Illinois basin was really heating up. Okay. And it's a very gassy formation, but very high nitrogen content as well. So as soon as the price of gas dropped, all of a sudden that went off the radar for many companies that were operating around there. But there were big acreage positions, you know, Noble, Chesapeake, and then quite a few other companies had some pretty substantial holdings there. But as time went on and, you know, they drilled those wells and realized the problems they were going to encounter, I think they backed off and, Hmm. you know, what that meant for a young guy who'd only done a little bit of leasing here and there, a little bit of title, certainly had no technical, you know, engineering, geology understanding at all is, yeah. all right, what else is going on around here? Is there anything else going on around here? And worked with a couple of guys who kind of messed around and thought we would, thought we'd, you know, maybe get into some secondary or tertiary recovery in some of these little oil fields around there. Yeah. 
that didn't really pan out so well. And, you know, this is about 2008. And, you know, I'm kind of coming to terms with the fact that if I intend to stay in this industry, it's not going to be here. Right. Like growing up or like, you know, you say you didn't have any family in the industry. You had friends in the industry or contacts that you had. But growing up, I mean, did you have other aspirations or did you, I mean, because obviously you didn't grow up knowing you'd be a land guy. Right? No. Nope, so, nope, I, mean, nope. I mean, when did you make I went that in, shift? I went into undergrad certain I was going to become a physician of some kind. Okay. And I met organic chemistry and we didn't get along very well. So <laughs> right. I had to rethink that a little bit. But, you know, I wouldn't say that I had a specific direction, you know, when I was in my later years of undergrad. Sure. And then some opportunities popped up. You know, my buddy's dad was putting together a coal bed methane play around the Indian Illinois border. And in that area, you have a lot of abandoned coal mines. So you have huge caverns underground where all this gas from the coal is migrated to. Hmm. And it's very cheap, very cheap and easy to drill. Okay. wells and just essentially you know poke into that into that cavern hmm. you know now i know that's certainly kind of a smaller you know whatever smaller time play mm-hmm. but at the time you know and for my buddy's dad it was a great opportunity you know big thing yeah and then some of the bigger companies came knocking as new albany shale took off and did a little bit of leasing project for a year or so which as a senior in college at iu couldn't have been better i was making 2.30 a day and had pretty much taken over the world. Yeah, Once you reach the top, where do you go from there? You know, that was a great experience. You know, the way that the things developed, the way the economics shook out, once the price of gas bottomed out, there were no opportunities around there, period. Hmm. Right. You know, and, and so, you know, kind of talked to some people I knew, figured out where there were opportunities, ended up finding myself in in Shreveport, Louisiana. No kidding. Working the Haynesville Shale. Okay. So I went from... Illinois Basin, where, you know, when we jumped from $10 an acre to $20 an acre for our lease bonuses, I thought, this is a big deal. I got some deals to close now. Yeah. You know, some of these people are on the sidelines. They're definitely going to move forward at this point. Then I went down to Shreveport and I walk in the first day, I find out that our client's paying $35,000 an acre for leases (laughs) down there. Yeah. You know, and I thought I had to have heard that wrong. But, you know, very interesting experience down there as well. You know, extremely competitive lease play, extremely high dollar value Hmm. assets for you know for, for all the companies operating down there so that was great kind of i mean slingshotted me into the big time of oil and gas and so i was around there for a couple months eventually let's see this is probably about 2009 made my way up to north dakota and that was the best opportunities were in north dakota at the time and yeah so i lived in minot for almost a year no way Yep. You know, and it was a great experience. At the time, I thought, this is just terrible. Yeah. You know, what could be worse than this? In hindsight, you know, it's a great experience to have, great thing to have, you know, kind of in my back pocket of having some good North Dakota experience all over that Northwest mm-hmm. quarter of North Dakota, but met some great people up there, worked for some great people, and definitely haven't had an opportunity to work for a wide variety of other land service companies. And that was, you know, you kind of come into something that's these older established land service companies that have been around for a couple decades, that kind of thing, and survived the harder times. They weren't necessarily in the mindset of how can we be as efficient as possible? It was just like, how can we conquer all this work that's in front of us? Yeah. And, you know, I saw some ways that I thought things could be done a little bit better, you know, especially in, in terms of how quickly can we get this product out the door? You know, how can we achieve better efficiencies? How can we have, you know, better people to take care of whatever tasks that we have in front of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that was really great. I was up in Minot for almost a year and always I had Colorado in my sights. Okay. Colorado was always, you know, came out here to go skiing when I was growing up. I had some family that lived out here and, you know, I certainly knew that the Midwest didn't really hold 
I think the opportunities that I was necessarily looking for. Sure. And so finally found a project down here in 2010, soon after EOG hit the, hit the Jake well, that was really kind of set the stage for Godell and Niobrara development in Colorado. Yeah. In Colorado and, you know, in Wyoming too. Anyhow, so came here on, on a ticket for a guy who, you know, had got his foot in the door with, with a good company and worked for him for, oh, a year-ish plus and kind of got the lay of the land here. At the same time, started a project with a partner down in Permian, down in, in Delaware. We were in Reeves, Culberson counties. This was 2011-12. This is before things really took off and got big down there. You know, things got slow after that for a little while and then, you know, really got crazy. And so... That was great, you know, great experience as well. Also a great experience in finding out that, you know, having a partner is kind of a brutal thing. Yeah. It can be a bit of a burden. Right. So, That's like uh, they say, what ships always sink, and those are the partnerships. Part- oh, I love it, man. I, uh, I'll take that from you. Right. Yeah, man, definitely. You know, so I'm 28, 29, so kind of learning some things about myself at the time. Of course. Certainly right? learning things about the industry a lot as time goes on and, so, you know, I'm kind of trying to establish myself as a new company down here, as a new land services company in the area. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm going to the DAPL functions. I'm going to the Denver Petroleum Club functions. You know, I'm just trying to meet anybody I can. And most of these people, I have no idea what their jobs mean or what they do or that <laughs> kind of thing. I'm just thinking, like, I know how to do yeah. this one discipline. I know how to do field land work. So where can I get my foot in the door? Right. Eventually, I, I crossed paths with a guy who was actually from Indiana as well, who worked for uh, Anadarko at the time. And after a number of calls and emails, he finally said, if you will annoy landowners as much as you annoy me, I'll give you a contract to go do some leasing in this area. <laughs> and, you know, I guess that's flattering right? on some level, <laughs> you know, but... Anyway, so kind of started off small on my own there. Had a couple of my good buddies who I knew were good people people who I could, you know, explain the oil and gas lease to. And the history of the Wattenberg field at the time was it was an established field. It was producing, you know, there was not, companies weren't really trying to grow their positions too much. It was, you know, was the historic field of, you know, 20, 30 plus years. Yeah. And so you didn't have a lot of guys who had experience buying leases a lot of experience negotiating with people out here hmm. and so you have this kind of the pocket that was the, the wattenberg field growing you know and, and everybody's kind of pushing the limits in every direction and you know what that equates to is new mineral owners that have not been parties to oil and gas leases to date that have seen you know from x amount of miles away those people seem like they're making money over there however much that is you know but maybe we're interested in that opportunity as well right so we, you know, kind of slowly grew from there. You know, I can't be more grateful to this guy for giving me the opportunity to kind of branch out on my own slowly but surely. You know, kind of it was a it was a two, three man deal and then, you know, five, six eventually, you know, got ten or twelve people working for me and we're doing their title and we're doing their leasing and you know, I'm feeling like this is kind of getting to where I want to be there. Yeah. And, you know, just good person to work for, good company to work for. And kind of at the same time learning, okay, there's this tremendous generation gap, right? You know, so we've got all these younger people that maybe have five, six, seven, eight years of experience running title, which, you know, where you have maybe a small handful of mineral owners under a track, or maybe your surface owner owns the minerals. Mm -hmm. That title is not that hard to do. You get into legacy production, it's quite a bit more difficult. What I'm learning then is, okay, you have these, you know, these, these people who can handle relatively less complicated title projects. And then you have this other group of people who have 30 years of experience 
the title projects they can handle are tremendously difficult. You know, you're looking at 30 years of production. You know, you're looking at complicated work interest divisions. You know, you're looking at over conveyance problems. You're looking at, you know, bankruptcies, uh, wow. that kind of thing. And that's a very complicated thing for a person who is coming into the shale world and has found that, okay, most times our service owners own the mineral rights, or at least maybe there's a fairly easy division. Maybe you have a quarter interest and that's as small as it gets. So, you know, kind of slowly but surely growing, kind of trying to learn how to appeal to other operators, other companies in the area. And I was, you know, this is my backyard. Couldn't have been more fortunate to be living in Denver and have <laughs> right. this opportunity. Yeah. You know, I think at the time there probably wasn't a better place in the United States where you could have a great city to live in and you could be working an hour away. You know, Dallas and Barnett, certainly a great opportunity there. But, you know, those kinds of things, that's a little hard to come by. Yeah, it's few and far between. I remember when I was actually here in Denver, like I was totally with the drilling fluids coming, I was managing a bunch of rigs for a large operator here. And it was funny because I could get up, go to the office, run some reports, do what I needed to do, head to the rig, bounce from rig to rig to rig, two or three, head back to the office, you know, go for lunch, hit a golf course if I wanted to and get a solid day's work, yep. still do customer relations stuff. But having that field and that basement so close to Denver, certainly it makes it the way you conduct business a little different, or it was for me and my, what I was doing. But yeah, it's kind of a gem because like I work in Houston now and a lot of my work is out in West Texas. And so you know, I can't just, you know, jump in my vehicle and get to the rig or, sure. you know, go deal with them. So, so it's a little bit of a different, you know, just logistically, it's it's super efficient here, which, you know, it's cool because you got, you know, you got the mountains, you got your work, you know, which is in your backyard, oh, yeah. you got, you can play in your backyard. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's kind of like, you know, you got everything in one spot, which is super cool. So yeah. yeah, it is. And we can talk about it a little further, but it's, it's sad because now we're seeing quite a bit of resistance, you know, just with the oil and gas activity here in Colorado, which we can touch on after, you know, you've kind of followed your story. But either way, yeah, you landed in a good spot, buddy, for sure. <laughs> you no, know, I, I certainly count my blessings. Yeah, that definitely is the case. You know, and we've got Wyoming, you know, a 90-mile drive away. Yeah. You know, the greater DJ that gets into Laramie County up there in Wyoming, you know, that title historically was not a very complicated title. You know, you get up, you know, a few more hours north and you're getting into the Powder River Basin. And that's quite a bit more complex asset. You know, you've got divided ownership in multiple pay zones. You know, you mm. may have mineral ownership, working interest ownership that breaks down in those pay zones substantially. Yeah. But, you know, overall, those of us who were able to live and work in Colorado are extremely fortunate. But, you know, you're exactly right. You know, the issues that we are facing, you know, politically, you know, they're problematic. You know, it's yet another rulemaking, you know, but I think one thing that I'm very fortunate for and, you know, it can kind of dig into this a little bit more, but in the contract world, I think we have a lot more flexibility than the employee world. Mm -hmm. And I'm extremely fortunate to have a great group of people that have, you know, 30 or 40 years of experience. And, you know, they're perhaps not the most attractive hire for an employee position at mm -hmm. a big company, and they right. probably don't want that anyway. Sure. But the benefit for me is that we get this great knowledge base, this great skill set, you know, and we have people who they don't necessarily need to work five days a week, they don't need to work 12 months out of the year, but they enjoy doing it, you know? And so I've tried to kind of build two sides of a team, you know, around the generation gap. Yeah. And I've been extremely fortunate to have come across some of the greatest people, again, with 30, 40 years of experience 
that they may not know exactly what your situation is or what, you know, whatever this new client situation is, but something like this happened, you know, that yeah. once upon a time in 1989, they had a similar scenario and, <laughs> yeah. you know, this happened with this JOA partner or this happened with this mineral owner or that kind of thing, you know? And so I've got, you know, one project manager in particular who was director of land at a big company here. And a couple of years after he retired, we stayed in touch, you know, and a couple of years after he retired and we were, we were talking and he says, you know, I just wanted to be a land man. He said, I just kept getting pushed into management positions just because I was the best guy for the job, you know, and, and yeah. I didn't say no. He said, but I just wanted to be a land man. So what do you have? What, you know, you got anything? I can just do some land work. So, you know, he's 65 years old and I teamed him up with a small group of guys that have a wildcat play out in the middle of nowhere. Cool. And he just does everything for him. You know, he negotiates the leases for him and you know, he oversees the leases being typed in our office and being sent out, that kind of thing. But is he ever a gem for those guys? Because, yeah. you know, these guys are, you know, they're 30s, 40s, whatever. They don't have this, you know, 40 years of experience to draw from, you know. And so something pops up and he says, well, you know, we had a similar experience once upon a time. Here's how we handle And these guys just think, perfect. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's go forward Dude, with that. Dude, that's so, so valuable. It definitely is. It definitely is. You know, and, you know, obviously when you have people that are, you know, in their 60s plus, something like that. You know, they don't always have the technological abilities that those of us that grew up with the internet, with computers do. Mm -hmm. And so to complement that, I've been extremely fortunate to put together a good staff of people that are, you know, younger than 40, call it something like that, yeah. that have, you know, 5, 10, 15 years of experience in the industry, have great technological abilities. You know, they know the Microsoft suite well, you know, they can do whatever you need to do in Microsoft Excel. Yeah. And they have a great fundamental understanding of, of land. And so to, you know, put somebody with, you know, 10, 15 years of experience with somebody with 40 years of experience and have them kind of work together to manage a project, yeah. you know, they complement each other so well because, cool. you know, you've got your, your younger person who's, you know, kind of doing all the thorough work on the back end, tracking everything, tracking all the assignments, tracking all the client requests, that kind of thing. And then we've got our Oracle you know, over here, you can literally answer any question that comes up. For sure. You know, we had a project in Wyoming recently and... You know, one of the people that was on the project, you know, she has 35 years of experience. And so we're talking about the complexities of federal mineral ownership. Okay. Which all those federal leases go through the BLM, which is in Cheyenne. So we're talking about, okay, you know, we've got some fee and some federal ownership in here. We've got, you know, a mix that's heavily fed. You know, we need to understand what are the Fed requirements? You know, how do we work with, how do we work with the Fed? How do we track all this title? And, you know, she has three people at the BLM office that she knows from when she was working and she calls them up and she gets all the answers that we need, you know, as far as access to the records, as far as, you know, what the plans of the BLM office are. And it's just something that you can't put a price tag on. Yeah. You know, land is a very inexact science. Right. You know, you can go to school for petroleum engineering, you can go to school for geology. You can get a PLM degree, but a PLM degree will kind of give you the gloss over high level of being a landman, you know, doing deals, you know, JOAs, you know, a little bit of understanding of title. Mm -hmm. But title examination, the word landman is such a broad, such a broad word. Yeah. You know, you might be, you know, a person that works for a big EMP company that only does back ends. Maybe you only do non-op stuff. And you've never stepped foot in a courthouse. Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you've got a guy who's done nothing but work in the courthouse for decades. Yeah. You know, who can run that mineral title and give you this great title report that is perhaps a better quality than what an attorney 
who is, you know, a few years out of school or, you know, or further along in their career can give you. Yeah. And so I think that sort of dumbed down version that is what field land work is compared to what attorneys do. You just have, you know, a group of people that they didn't go to school for this. You know, somebody kind of taught them along the way and their value has been in that they don't, you know, attorneys are charging, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars an hour to render a title opinion. Whereas, you know, if you have somebody who has done nothing but title work for all their lives, you know, for fifty, sixty dollars an hour, they can kind of give you a better product or a similar product to what the attorneys can give. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity there, whether or not you're a big EMP company or, you know, you're putting together a you know, non-op package, whether or not you're buying minerals, you know, you're leasing to flip to somebody else. Mm-hmm. You can't afford to pay, you know, $400 an hour, right. 10 days a week, that hmm. kind of thing, you know, for attorneys. And so having contract landmen who are happy to work overtime, they're happy to, you know, you tell them, hey, we need this. We need to crank this thing out. We need 10 days out of this week. Yeah. You know, we need 12 hours a day. You know, there are a lot of people out there who are very willing and anxious to do that. Hmm. So, yeah, no, that makes sense. I'd like to shift a little bit and talk more specifically about Discovery Land. So, obviously, you know, you're president of the company. So, give us a, a brief overview of Discovery Land and, and sort of what a general scope of work is for a company like yourselves. So, you know, fundamentally, we're an outsourced group for your EMP that may have five landmen, but has a massive leasehold in an area, they can't do all this work themselves. They can't do all this title themselves. They can't do the leasing themselves. Mm-hmm. So we kind of fill that void, you know, and okay, you know, you need a group of a couple guys out here leasing, filling in your units, taking leases on all the small tracks that perhaps weren't captured the first time around, that kind of thing. But you know, then and getting their title also, whether or not you're buying, you know, 30,000 acres from your neighbor next door and you need somebody to run the due diligence on that, that kind of thing. So, you know, I was fortunate to work for a handful of, in a variety of brokerage companies early in my career and see, okay, this is kind of how a smaller group operates. This Mm -hmm. is how a bigger group operates. This is how a very big group operates. And they're, I think, identifying some of the inefficiencies there I kind of struck out to solve some of those issues, perfect some of those problems. So on the one level, you know, I think that's a big benefit that we have is that, you know, we look to where can we provide greater efficiencies to clients? Hmm. You know, let's look at the classic land model, classic land services model. Where can we turn around and say, okay, we can do much better here. But a huge advantage that we've developed is in our data, our data management. I have to give a lot of credit to my brother who came on board with me a few years ago and he got his master's in information systems. Oh, nice. And, you know, he had done some side title work for me over the years, you know, a little bit of courthouse research, that kind of thing. And he looked at it as, okay, how can I automate this? How can I make this easier? Nice. So I guess to take a little bit of a step back, you know, what I've seen in my career since about 2004 is many counties are going online. Many counties have digitized their records. Many counties have from the original patents all the way through to present online. Mm -hmm. And that presents a tremendous opportunity for people doing land work who can work remotely. Now you still have your counties where everything is in a book, everything is in the county office, everything is in the recorder's office there. And the only way you're going to access that is actually physically going into that office. That's a fact. You know, some of those counties are coming along a little bit slowly, but surely, but You definitely have the counties that stand apart. And Weld County is a perfect example here in Colorado Hmm. because when I came to Colorado in 2010, you know, we would go to the title plant and we would hand write out, you know, they charge us $200 an hour to stand there and we'd hand write out everything from the index. And then we would go get our microfilm and we, you know, spend three more days copying all your documents in the microfilm. 
Gee. So a hugely inefficient process, right? So, so Weld County then goes online and everything from the original patents all the way through to the present are available online. The images and all the data about the all the data about every document, right? Hmm. So you you know you open up the document, you can see the details about the grantor, grantee, document type, recording date, all of this. Which, if you are a title examiner and you're putting together an ownership report, you're going to let your client know you're your mineral owners in this tract, you're your surface owner, that kind of thing. If you're sending this to an attorney, you're putting together an abstract to go to the attorney, which is everything that's transacted in this property. Some of the original work that I did. Back in Illinois and Indiana, you go to some of these landowners, some of these farmers, and they would have their abstract. Literally, they would have their binder of documents from day <laughs> one of everything that's transacted on this property. And that's you know what the age of title insurance kind of did away with that. You know, you didn't need to have a complete chain of title from the original patents from the government mm-hmm. if you had title insurance. You know, if you're buying a house, you know, what could really go wrong here? You have title insurance, right? Sure. So in these counties and you know well I'll just use Weld County because it's such a great example where you have all this data online you still have to have somebody go in there and click on it open up the document you know type out whatever they see into their run sheet type out grantor type out grantee that kind of thing so what the particularly some of the programs my brother's developed is you know he can feed his program a thousand reception numbers a thousand document identifiers and that will go into the county system automatically. You can set up to run overnight. Go into the county system, download everything. Download grantor, grantee, document type, recording date, download the document, hyperlink the document. And all of a sudden, you have this beautiful abstract built out, this, you know, this Excel-based abstract that formerly, you know, you, you'd have pitfalls you had before were human error, huge human error issues. You miss a document. You know, you misspell a name on a document, you know, all these things that could potentially throw a wrench in what your product is. It's going out the door to a title attorney. Yeah. And we have resolved there is that this is pulling directly from the county system. So whatever the county shows as as the record, that's what we're pulling in. But these programs can work so fast that what used to take, you know, an abstract that used to take a couple of weeks now takes a couple of days. I was going to ask, like, what's that differential, which is huge, obviously. You know, it's probably 30% of the time that it used to take and probably about 60% of the cost that it used to be. Wow. It's pretty incredible. We had a client here in Wattenberg who had a 1280 drilling unit. And in that 1280 drilling unit, they had an 80-acre subdivision. In that subdivision, there were 40,000 documents. What? So, you know, if you turn the clock back to how are you going to do this the old way, you're going to need a small army of people, and it's going to take you a couple months to do this. No kidding. We did that in a few weeks. We delivered that abstract in a few weeks, and that's a very large-scale abstract. That's crazy. You know, the ability to provide our clients what they need to get to their attorneys to produce title opinions, to render title opinions on, you know, whatever their drilling units are, we've dramatically sped that up. You know, you might have a title opinion from 2015. Maybe you thought you were originally going to drill then. Things got pushed back a little bit. Now you need an update on that title opinion. You need to know everything that's happened in section three of, you know, four north, 66 west. And so we get an update on that that's four years, three, four years, whatever. We can deliver that within, to our clients within like 24 hours. Wow. That's so crazy. when you're really under the gun, under the deadline to get that out the door, this is a tremendous product for that. And what we're seeing more and more is that these kind of backdoor systems that run the county record systems are becoming more and more widespread. And you look, okay. at, you look at Permian, for example, and, you know, say Permian has 40, 45, 50 busy counties down there. 
we figured that about 42 of those counties have great online resources. Now you may have a county that only has from 1985 to the present, right? Something like that. So you have limitations based on what's available there. Yeah. But, you know, it's a great starting point. Once you get there, once you have a county that works like that, you can deliver pretty tremendous results. No um, kidding. Huh. But, you know, in addition to that, kind of the older land model was you need 10 tracks run. You're going to hire 10 guys and send them to, you know, Williston, North Dakota, put them in a hotel up there. And, you know, they're going to have to go to the courthouse every day and work through that. <laughs> and so that's an efficiency. So even when we have courthouses or, you know, areas that, that are not as digitized as we would like, mm-hmm. we'll send a couple guys to an area like that, you know, and two guys with nice scanners can support a crew of 20 on the ground. So we figure it costs somewhere between six and $7,000 per person per month to put somebody in a hotel out of town and give them access to going back and forth from home once a month. Mm. So, you know, you've got a 10-person project, that's $60,000 a month, that's $720,000 a year. And that's just not feasible for a lot of companies. And, okay. you know, why waste that money unless you absolutely have to? So, you know, I think small efficiencies like that that we've been able to capture have been pretty huge. Yeah. So Yeah, no, most definitely. And I would imagine that's what kind of makes Discovery Land more of a premier service than a lot of the competitors. And, and the land game is just totally out of my normal scope. But are there a lot of people in this field that are sort of leveraging that ability through digitization? And it sounds to me like it's this is a little bit of data analytics and sort of, you know, that stuff. Are you familiar with a lot of people that are doing that? Or are you guys kind of first to market? Or I'm not aware of anybody else who is kind of automating data extraction like we are that's awesome Um, you know you have a lot of companies out there that have developed sort of ai programs that are reading your documents for you Mm -hmm. they're reading your joas for you they're reading you know i would say documents post 2000 right those kind of ocr systems or you know ai related systems they can read those documents because those are nicely typed out you know yeah, whatever. But you get further back in time, you know, you talk about going all the way back to, to patents in the 1800s. Those are all handwritten documents. Wow. And if you develop a program that can read handwritten documents from 19 or from, you know, 1880, whatever, <laughs> more power to you. You know, yeah. but it's people use different language things. They use different verbiage. And so that's difficult enough to interpret as a person at present day reading all of that, let alone if you're going to task that to an AI system. Mm-hmm. That's very complicated. So that goes all the way forward to, you know, you, you had you know, handwritten documents and then all of a sudden you had kind of your boilerplate documents. Somebody, you know, they run through a typewriter, you type that stuff out and it's, you know, like six point font, eight point font, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the scanning systems or, you know, or at least what captured that information back then, you may have a very grainy document. Mm-hmm. So, and then even leading up into the nineties, you know, you had the dot matrix printers that, you know, they are printing very small font and you might have, you know, a very complicated assignment of oil and gas leases that, you know, an, an AI system is not going to be able to read that. Yeah. So, you know, while, you know, I applaud those people that they're developing the systems that can automate reading these documents and automate interpreting these documents, nothing is going to take away from the fact that our history in the United States is that documents were handwritten for hundreds of years. And, you know, there's no interpretation of those. So our goal here has been, okay, how can we acquire that information quicker and easier to give either to a title attorney or to a landman who is a title examiner? Yeah. How can we avoid all this clicking around, you know, searching that kind of thing? 
And so that's what we've done by automating a lot of these abstracts. So we deliver to our title examiners, we deliver to our clients, title attorneys, a product that they can work with immediately. And they don't have to really dig in and do kind of all this tedious clicking around and, and that kind of thing. Wow. So I think we'll never be able to get away from people who understand title examination, who understand a chain of title, who understand interest conveyances, that kind of thing. Because, you know, a big thing, I think it's kind of a fundamental of, of land and, and title examination is you don't really read the title of a document. You might have something that says an assignment of oil and gas interests, and that may be actually a mineral deed, or that may be an assignment of oil and gas leases. It's all about the verbiage in the document, not necessarily the title of the document. So, gotcha. Huh. Anyway, that's a big thing. But, you know, I, I think another big advantage is that in the contract world, a lot of what you have is people are kind of viewed as a commodity. You know, you need this guy today, not tomorrow. You know, you need this team today, not tomorrow. And, you know, when they're done, they're done. You know, we've had contracts with clients that, you know, you feel like you're knee deep in in a project and you show up one day and they say the project's over. Yeah. And, you know, in defense of the contract world, when you're a contractor, you need to accept that you're a contractor. You're not an employee. Nothing is guaranteed day to day. Nothing is guaranteed. And that's definitely a hard thing for a person to accept. A hard thing to, I think, cognitively keep in mind, yeah, right? Is yeah. that, that, you know, this could end today. All right. Is today the day it ends is today, you know, whatever. And, you know, I think we've honestly, on some level, the veil of security that an employee position has, I think as time goes on, especially in our generation, we've realized that, you know, you're not going to go to college or you're not going to go to high school and go to work for GE. You're not going to go work for Whirlpool and they're going to take care of you. If you're going to work there for all your life and you're going to have a pension, they're going to take care of you. Yeah. That's kind of become a myth in our world, right? So, you know, in the contract world and, you know, and certainly what I experienced early on in my career was, you know, you're a commodity, right? You know, hardly a person, you're doing the job on this project that we need right now and that's it. And, you know, when we're done with you, we're done with you. And that's a lot of at least what the contract land world is. And, you know, I don't know about other contract disciplines or or capacities in, in the oil and gas industry, but anyway, you know, we put a lot of effort into making people feel like they're not just a number on a list, right. right? That, you know, we have some value. We want to keep you busy. So, you know, probably to my detriment sometimes, you know, I work very hard to keep people busy who have done great work for me over the years. And that's just not something that you see in the contract world so often. So, huh. you know, I think letting people know that they are of value to you, that, you know, in fostering their growth, fostering their development, you know, I've got a phenomenal project manager in a gentleman named Doug Potter here who about once a month goes and teaches classes for the AAPL, American Association of uh, Professional Landmen. And he teaches classes on very complicated working interest conveyances. And, you know, last year, earlier this year, I guess, Doug put on a short class for all of our contract title examiners to explain to them, here are the extreme complexities of working interest conveyances, of complicated calculations that you know, help these people greatly grow their careers and essentially their value to not only me, but to you know, any other client. And you know, things like that, trying to move past a number on a list, trying to move past you know, a lack of value for this person's work and contribution, I think have served me pretty well. And you know, that's something that we try to certainly try to practice around here is, you know, you do good work for us. We're going to do the best we can to keep you busy. We appreciate everything that you do. And, you know, so that just, you know, kind of preaches on the culture here and, you know, you got a neat environment here. You're downtown Denver. 
you know, great guy. You know, I think that it kind of it breeds innovation and success. And so one of the questions I would have for you is how do, you know, especially in oil and gas right now, just talking to a lot of folks in a lot of different disciplines is, is it's hard to attract good quality talent into the oil field right now because everyone wants to go, you know, work at all these fancy tech companies, all these mm-hmm. unicorn companies. They all want to get out to Silicon Valley or Austin or, you know, and even Denver. I think you guys are pretty, you know, up on the technology side of it. But, you know, certainly there's other cities that are thriving and, you know, through the tech world just in general. And I think that's such a big trend. But how do you attract good talent? How do we as an industry, you think, continue to attract quality talent? Well, you know, I see us kind of recoiling, kind of shrinking a little bit in the coming years. Mm -hmm. I think that most facets of the industry that has become the shale industry almost as much as the oil and gas industry was, you know, 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. you know, the massive land grabs are over. The need for a huge amount of people in all these disciplines is over. And so I don't think that we're necessarily in a position where we have to attract a lot of people. I think it's kind of Hmm. like, okay, of these 100 people, which 20 are going to be leaving the industry in the next 10 years? Sure. 10 months, that kind of thing. Hmm. You know, and inland, you know, it's very much a kind of slowly but surely learning process, especially field title examination. You know, I can put you with a great title examiner and you can work next to him for two years and you are going to have a 90% capacity to do almost anything you encounter. But that other 10%, that takes 20 years because it takes encountering these, you know, strange scenarios along the way. You know, like how do we deal with, you know, we've got three family members and then one showed up again after probate and this wasn't included in the probate. You know, how do we account for this person? And that's why, you know, I think capturing and developing relationships with people who are pre-retirement, post-retirement, you know, whatever, somewhere around that, in that vein, mm. they can have a very valuable influence on people who are younger and who are interested in, you know, in, in developing their skill set. So, you know, I guess long answer to an easy question, but I think that, you know, for the coming years, I think we're going to be pretty well set on the personnel that we have. Gotcha. In fact, I think we're going to have a decent amount of personnel that might find themselves available and need to need to find another discipline. But you know, one thing that I'm very interested in and working in around here that, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with, but many other companies do, many other land services companies do, is renewables, you know, especially solar. I don't think we've seen tremendous change in wind mm. in the last few years, but solar has become so efficient that if you're replacing the roof in your house and you don't put solar on it, you live in Colorado, you're crazy. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of money to be made there. And so, you know, whether it's renewable development on oil and gas facilities, on oil and gas, you know, surface pads, whatever, or, you know, completely different, completely separated, you know, solar developments, you know, you still have to have a lease. You still have to have right of way to run your transmission lines. You still have to have, you still have to know what the mineral ownership looks like. So there are many similarities to oil and gas field land services in these renewables. And, you know, I think that's going to be a good avenue for a lot of people. You know, at the present time, I'm kind of more in a due diligence marketing mode. Yeah. You know, as prices drop, as things slow, you're not seeing big lease plays, right? You're not seeing big acquisition deals. You're not seeing companies that want to go and fill all of their units. They're just trying to stick with the small budget they have to, you know, drill and hold what they have right here. 
And so what we convert to at you know, these times is more of a due diligence phase, right? We're going to see more bankruptcies in the next couple of years, mm-hmm. right? Hopefully, maybe not even the next couple of years. Hopefully, maybe the next year. We'll cross <laughs> our fingers. Yeah. But I think doing due diligence work, and, and frankly, right now, we're extremely fortunate to be doing probably the biggest due diligence project in the Rockies. Certainly very fortunate in that regard. But the due diligence constraints get very difficult. You know, a client may need you to provide due diligence, run title on 100,000 acres in 60 days. And that is, you're going to need a small army of people. And your organization, your organization's people is going to be in so much of a challenge that, you know, running that project efficiently is almost as challenging as, you know, having the right people to do that work. So I think there are good opportunities. You know, they're in the due diligence world, but that's also kind of a hot and cold thing. You know, you don't have due diligence projects lined up one after another, right? You know, companies, you can't control when your client is going to have a closing date, when their PSA is signed, that kind of thing. And so, you know, I think even the best of title examiners, even the best of field landmen may have some downtime in the next year or so. Hmm. But I think as, you know, with, with anything, especially in this industry, I think those people who are very talented and who, you know, who are there to work hard and, and push through, I think they'll survive and, you know, they'll do okay. Most definitely. But I don't necessarily see that we're going to have a shortfall in personnel, especially in field contract land personnel okay. in the coming years. So cool. Uh, interesting perspective anyway, for sure. Appreciate yeah, the answer there. Long answer. So I want to respect your time here, but I do have a couple more questions, sort of more on the personal side of things. But what excites you the most about what you're doing right now within the land world? You know, what I really enjoy is meeting with a client and kind of hearing about what their problems are, you know, whether it's an internal problem or an external problem, whether it's a problem they've had with the previous land services group or an internal problem that, you know, we can't, we've got a huge curative list that we can't get we can't get to. I enjoy working with great people, definitely, mm-hmm. which I'm extremely fortunate to work with a lot of great people here. Yeah. But, you know, meeting with a client and, and you know, kind of figuring out what makes them tick, you know, what are your holdups? What are your constraints right now in your world? Right. You need X. I got one of my great project managers here. We're, we were just talking about marketing a couple of days ago. And he said, think about what their secret problem is. He said, you know, so you're sitting there at lunch with somebody, you know, and he said, they've got a problem in their head. They're not going to tell you what it is. Yeah. You know, but, what can we do to resolve those problems for those people? You know, they're interested in potentially doing business with you, but they want to know that you can solve whatever their problem is. And again, it kind of goes back to, you know, the term landman is such a broad term. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many disciplines kind of fall under that. But, you know, I think what I really enjoy is meeting with a client, hearing kind of what their problems are, what their goals are, and setting up a good team and executing that for them. Nice. You know, that's something I really enjoy. You know, I'm a people person. I'll get along with anybody. But, you know, when you see somebody who has, you know, a tight budget, they have a tight timeline, they have tight, you know, whatever the problems are, and you can kind of help them resolve those problems, you know, that's a great thing. Sure. You know, that's something to feel good about on, you know, in every regard. So. Yeah, no. And I think that's the fundamentals of success for sure is, is identifying, especially, you know, in, in the service industry is identifying problems and coming up with cost effective solutions yeah. and delivering, you know, high class service every yeah. single day and always being there for your clients. And yeah, it's, it's gratifying when, yeah. when you can achieve that and you can help companies reach their goals. You know, I know for me and what I do, that that's the best part about it is just, yeah helping others achieve their goals and their benchmarks and just knowing that you were a part of that is great. Oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, definitely. I feed off that very much. Yeah, no, that's great. Do you have any daily habits or routines that help keep you focused and motivated to keep grinding? Boy, I try. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, I think morning exercise sets the tone for the day. Cool. It really does. I think, 
you know, all the old sayings, early bird gets the worm. You yeah. Know, I mean, that's, I think, you know, your day starts early, your day starts earlier than everybody else's. You're going to get ahead of things. You know, that I mean, my greatest days are when I get in the office at 5 a.m., mm-hmm. right? I'm in here for three hours before anybody else comes in. Yeah. You know? Or, you know, get up at five, get a good workout in, get the blood flowing. I think those are very valuable things. But, you know, the truth is, you know, seven times out of 10, I'll plan my day out, you know, for the next day. I walk in thinking, all right, boom, 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 I'm going to do all these things. And my day just immediately gets hijacked. You know, it's like email (laughs) from a client. Hey, remember this project you did for us six months ago? We need X, Y, Z. All right, well, we'll figure this out. Yeah. You know, or, you know, we've had this problem, that problem, whatever. And so, you know, I think for a business owner, you know, you can't be too rigid. Sure. And you really can't be too hard on yourself. I've spent a lot of years being way too hard on myself, you know, leaving the day at, you know, 5.30 p.m., closing out and thinking, man, you know, I didn't do anything I needed to do today, X, Y, Z. But the truth is, you know, this is what I signed up for. I signed up for, okay, you know, here's what the ideal day is going to be. But is that really going to happen? Hopefully. And if not, you know what? Let's push these things and, you know, push these things on and prioritize a little bit better next time. You know, big thing I try to do is I try to keep my Mondays and Fridays pretty free. I try to kind of have those like internal organization, whether that means internal in my office or internal in my own head. Yeah, yeah. Kind of keep those things free, you know, Tuesday through Thursday. That's going to be a little more client focus, you know, figure out what's, you know, maybe some new business development. Yeah. You know, certainly time to, you know, meet with current clients, figure out how we can do more for them, how we can do better for them, that kind of thing. But, you know, I think a big thing I've struggled with a lot is, What's reasonable for me? You know, I'll walk into the day thinking I'm going to do this, you know, this long checklist of things. Yeah. Man, no person can do that. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, in, in reality, you know, look at this, like nobody can get through this in a day and answer emails and be available. Sure. So, you know, I think, you know, from a business owner's perspective, you kind of have to be easy on yourself, you know, wake up and, you know, know that you're going to give this day 100%. Don't ask too much of yourself and, you know, book in some personal time. Yeah. I definitely have been my own victim of, you know, working for 16 hours in a day plus. Yeah. And, you know, that's just, that's just not sustainable. Right. Just not sustainable. And what you have to offer your clients or your, you know, or your employees, contractors, whatever, there's a, a dramatic marginal loss as that day goes on. You know, mm-hmm. you're great for a period of time during the day. And, you know, I feel like it's, you know, recognize what's best for yourself. For right? sure. Getting that day start early, yeah. exercise early. If I have two things, those will set the tone for honestly almost my career. Yeah, no, I, I can identify with you. I've always been a morning person, and I've, you know, same thing. I work out in the mornings. I get up most of the time at four fifteen, gym by five, in the customer's office. I work in house with a certain customer, and so I'm in their office six forty five. And yeah, it's just you know, for me, if I win the morning, I win the day. Oh yeah, and that's, that's sort of my philosophy. It. And yep. Aubrey Marcus actually, you know, that's his quote, but. Anyway, I can identify big time with that. And so I appreciate the answer. One more question before we close out here. Do you have any sort of hidden hobbies or things that not many people know about that you use to disconnect, you know, from work or from just life in general? Do you have any sort of like hidden quirks? On a daily, on a, on a, a daily note? It could um, be, yeah, daily or monthly or just anything that you, you know, do. I, I leave my phone at my office and put my headphones in and take my dogs for a walk for an hour. Yeah. And that way I can ignore anybody who talks to me or asks me for money on the street or 
whatever else because <laughs> yeah. I have headphones in. Yeah. And I just get some nice time in my head. Okay. But also, I love sneaking off to the mountains, especially during the winter. You know, get yeah. a good snow day in. If I can move some meetings around, you know, I love that. I've taken many calls on the chairlift. Yes. You, know, you can put out the small fires in the chairlift on your 10 minutes there once every 30 <laughs> minutes. And, yeah. you know, that's just a great getaway, getting some of that mountain air in and get a little refresh. Hell yeah. You know, it's, it's too easy to get in a cycle of burning yourself out. Big and time, especially really nowadays. Is. We're connected all the time. That's the truth, right? How are you going to get away from that? <laughs> right. Awesome. No, I appreciate that. Well, look, a few more things before we're done here. I'd like to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming events. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for February. We do not have any OGGN happy hours in February, but we do have an exciting event coming up in Pittsburgh. This will be our first happy hour there in March, and it will be taking place on March 25th. The location is to be determined, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter to keep up with uh, those announcements and to purchase tickets. The Houston API Luncheon will be on February 11th. This will be a networking event with top oil and gas business leaders. And they promise that you'll be learning something really cool. So check it out and sign up for that event. The Wildcatters Ball will be on February 7th in Houston. This ball is the primary oil and natural gas industry fundraising event for the IPAA Educational Foundation. Proceeds go toward funding the foundation's energy education programs. The API Energy Houston Three Gun Chapter will be on March 20th in Houston. This event fills up really quickly, so make sure to get your team entered. The best way to do so is to fax or email the form with at least a captain's name as soon as possible. If you need to wait for a check, just notate that on the bottom of the form and send it on. We will be sending Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister to Scotland, to Aberdeen, Scotland, on March 5th for DokaruCon, which is the first event of its kind. It is a conference for creating high impact sales in energy. And Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast. If you're interested in attending this event, visit dokarucon.dokaru.com. And that is D-O-Q-A-R-U-C-O-N. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to check again next month for more updates on OGGN events. Awesome. Thank you. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Wet crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. So hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get in shape over the winter, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Man, thanks so much for joining me today. If people are interested to hear more about you or your company or simply just have any land questions, what's the best way to reach out? Our website is discoveryland.com. My email couldn't be easier. It's james at discoveryland.com. So cool. if you can't get that straight, we probably don't have anything to talk about. Yeah, anymore, yeah. So. <laughs> I hear you, man. Well, we'll put the link in the show notes for people who are maybe, you know, didn't catch that. But yeah, we'll do that. And man, any closing last words before we sign no, on? Just to thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Cool. Well, I'm excited for you guys and you guys are doing some really cool things and looking forward to seeing what the future holds. For everyone out there, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil and Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 